You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Dr. Spencer, we ended last time in the middle of discussing different evangelical positions regarding salvation. How would you like to proceed today? Well, the fundamental question we were dealing with at the end of our last session was whether or not every person has equal ability to accept or reject God's offer of salvation. And I want to state and defend the proper biblical answer to that question. Lutherans and Arminians would say that everyone does have equal ability to accept or reject God's offer of salvation, but the Reformed, and I would say biblical position, is that an unregenerate person cannot accept the offer, and a regenerate person cannot reject the offer. We've talked about how people make choices a number of times in these podcasts, most notably in session 84, where I presented Jonathan Edwards' view, which I think is correct. In that session, I paraphrased his view as being that we always do that which we most want to do at any given moment, but limited, of course, to those things which we are able to do. And I remember from that discussion that we are limited not only by obvious physical limitations, but also by our own nature. And that is the limitation that matters in the current context. Theologians often refer to this constrained view of free will as free agency. As we noted in session 126, an unregenerate person is an enemy of God and has no desire for God, so it would be contrary to his nature to accept God's offer of salvation, and he is therefore incapable of doing so. J.I. Packer has a wonderful short presentation on this topic in his book, Concise Theology. On the other hand, if a person is born again, his fundamental nature has been changed so that he has a desire for God and therefore he is incapable of rejecting God's offer of salvation. Which is the doctrine often called irresistible grace. That's right. But if we look at the Lutheran and Arminian position, it seems to be logically inescapable that if every person has equal ability to accept or reject God's offer of salvation, then those who are saved can take some credit for their salvation. Whether we word it negatively and say that only those who ultimately reject the offer will go unsaved, or we put it positively and say that only those who accept the offer will be saved, at the end of the day, if everyone is equally capable of making either choice, then the deciding factor in terms of who is saved and who isn't resides in man. And why exactly is that a problem? I can see three ways in which that's a problem. First, it ignores the biblical doctrine of total depravity. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 verse 1, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and dead people don't do anything to help themselves come alive. The great 18th century theologian Charles Hodge wrote that, quote, Should Christ pass through a graveyard and bid one here and another there to come forth, the reason why one was restored to life and another left in his grave could be sought only in his good pleasure. Well, that does make perfect sense. It certainly could not be the case that one set of bones accepted an offer to come to life and another set of bones rejected that same offer. Uh, No, that wouldn't make any sense at all. Dead people don't do anything. 
and people who are spiritually dead don't do anything that is in concert with the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, we're told that, quote, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. And one of the things that comes from the Spirit of God is his offer of salvation. That's right. I want to remind our listeners of the acrostic TULIP, which stands for the biblical doctrines of total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. In session 126, I quoted the theologian R.C. Sproul, who pointed out that if we understand our moral inability to respond to God's offer, which is part of the doctrine of total depravity, the rest of the Reformed system of salvation, as represented by this acrostic tulip, logically follows. He wrote that, quote, If one embraces this aspect of the T in tulip, the rest of the acrostic follows by a resistless logic, unquote. And I would add that Charles Hodge completely agrees. He wrote about this same plan of salvation, which he calls the Pauline or Augustinian scheme, and said, quote, such is the order of his plan of redemption that if one of the great truths which it includes be admitted, all the rest must be accepted. They're both pointing out that the Reformed or biblical view of the plan of salvation is completely consistent. What's the second problem you see with the view that every man can either accept or reject God's offer of salvation? Well, if it were true, it would give us something to be proud of. If we were both equally capable of either accepting or rejecting God's offer of salvation, and I were saved and you were not, then whether we say that it's because you rejected God's offer or because I accepted it, either way the bottom line is that I did and it was precisely that action of mine that was the reason I was saved and you were not. The difference between us would not be solely due to the mercy of God. I would have played a role in my salvation— and not just a little bit part either. I would have played the decisive role in it. But as we read last time, Paul told us in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 that it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Yeah, I, I certainly see that argument. What's the third problem you see with this view? That it denies God's absolute sovereignty. If this view is correct, then when the Bible speaks about God's election, all it can really be referring to is his foreknowledge. According to this view, God knows in advance who will accept his offer and who won't, so he quote-unquote elects those who will accept his offer of salvation. That is, of course, exactly how Lutherans and Arminians view the doctrine of election. It is, but I don't think it does justice to the biblical data. If that were the case, then you wouldn't expect the Bible to emphasize over and over again God's sovereign election. But that is exactly what we see all throughout the scriptures, the clear presentation of the fact that God makes an absolutely free, sovereign choice. This is the doctrine of unconditional election. Now, Lutherans and Arminians would point to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Peter addresses his letter, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that verse is certainly consistent with their view. 
but it does not teach us that he chose the elect specifically because of his foreknowledge that they would accept his offer. Rather, in context, the term foreknowledge here refers to God's having loved and chosen certain sinners in eternity past, even before they were born, which is exactly what we're told in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Let me read those verses. Paul wrote that God chose us in Jesus Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Notice that in these verses we are clearly told that our predestination to be adopted as God's sons, which is referring again to our being saved, was in accordance with his pleasure and will, which is emphasizing God's freedom in this choice. And we're also told that the choice was to the praise of his glorious grace. And we know that grace is unmerited favor. So that seems to point away from God simply having foreseen our choice. And finally, to put the nail in the coffin, we're told that he has freely given us this grace in Christ. If God gave exactly the same grace to everyone and our salvation depended on our response, then this verse wouldn't make any sense. It is speaking about a grace that is not given to everyone, but only to those whom God predestined in accordance with his own absolutely free and sovereign good pleasure. That argument is certainly persuasive, but there are also many more passages in the Bible that support the idea of God's sovereign election. Can you give us some examples? Sure. When Paul and Barnabas shared the gospel with the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch, we read in Acts 13, verse 48, that, quote, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed, unquote. Then, in speaking about Christ's second coming, we read in Matthew 24, verse 31, that God, quote, will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other, unquote. Also, the Apostle Paul opens his letter to Titus by writing, quote, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, unquote. There are literally dozens of examples in the New Testament that we could go through, but I don't want to take that time. I encourage anyone who's really interested to search the New Testament for the words elect, chosen, appointed, and so on, and see what you find. And interestingly, we even see a reference to elect angels. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, Paul told Timothy, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Yeah, that is interesting. And God's free choice in salvation is also foreshadowed by his sovereign choice of Israel to be his covenant people in the Old Testament. The classic passage about God's choosing his people is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, where Moses told the people, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And when Moses said that God didn't choose them because they were more numerous, 
That is a form of synecdoche, meaning it's part of something being used to represent the whole. So rather than listing many of the countless things that a group of people might be proud of, like their numbers or strength or wealth, he only lists the one. But the message is clear. He didn't choose them because of anything in them. He chose them simply because he loved them. And that love was not motivated by something worthy in them. And that's the whole point of what Moses is saying to them. He's telling them not to be proud. God chose them because he chose them, not because they were better than anyone else in any way. We also have the famous line in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, where God tells Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Which is a clear statement of God's sovereignty in providing blessings to men. God doesn't owe us anything, and he does not need to give equally to all of us to treat us justly. He gave us life, and we owe him everything. The fact that we have all rebelled against him leaves us justly under his wrath until and unless he chooses to show mercy to us. Now, you said earlier that mercy is God's unmerited favor shown to us, but we can make an even stronger statement. God's mercy is his favor being shown to those who deserved his condemnation. That's an accurate statement. The bottom line in this controversy is that those who say that every man is equally able to accept or reject God's offer of salvation are concerned with preserving a notion of man's freedom of will, often called libertarian free will, that is unbiblical, and I would add, illogical. No sinner will choose God until and unless his sinful nature, which hates God, is changed. And God does change the fundamental nature of his elect when he causes us to be born again. Exactly. But it seems to me that you have not yet presented the most obvious and irrefutable biblical evidence for the doctrine of unconditional election. Uh, You're quite right. I've saved the best, or should I say the most difficult, for last? Well, it's certainly the most difficult for men to accept. That's very true. And of course, we're speaking about chapter 9 of the book of Romans. God clearly tells us in this chapter that our election is not based on anything other than his sovereign choice. Let me read from Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, where God tells us about the patriarch Jacob and his twin brother Esau. Paul wrote, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Yeah, that is, as we noted, an extremely difficult passage for people to accept. And when Paul said, just as it is written, he was referring to the prophet Malachi, who wrote the last book of the Old Testament. We read in Malachi 1, verses 1 through 3, An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountain into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Yeah, it's very sobering to realize that when the Bible tells us that God is love, it doesn't mean that God loves everyone. It is sobering and it is difficult, but it is undeniably true. 
And as we've seen, it isn't just the Old Testament. God has not changed. And in the passage you read from Romans 9, we were clearly told that God's decision about which of the twins to elect to salvation was made before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. I don't know how it is possible to read that passage and conclude that God simply foresees who will accept or reject his offer of salvation. And Paul anticipates that people will object to this teaching. In Romans 9 verse 19, he writes, quote, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? Yeah, that is the natural question man wants to ask. How can God blame me for not repenting and believing in Jesus Christ if I'm unable to do so? And God's answer is not very politically correct. In verse 20, we read, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? I could give you a simple paraphrase of God's answer. He essentially says, Shut your mouth. But he does so while reminding us of the most important distinction there is. He is God, we are creatures. This creator-creature distinction that we've noted a number of times is absolutely essential to a proper understanding of the scriptures. We must humble ourselves. We must fear God. We must revere him, worship him, believe him, and obey him. To do anything else is to commit cosmic treason. Sin is rebellion against the only true and living God and creator of all things, and it deserves eternal punishment. God does not have to save anyone. It's absolutely amazing that he chooses to save anyone, especially when you consider the cost. In fact, it staggers the mind when you consider that cost. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And although it's admittedly difficult to accept this idea of God's unconditional election, it is actually a very comforting and marvelous doctrine. And once you understand it properly, I don't think anyone would want it any other way. I agree, but we don't have time enough to get into it further, so let me wind up our session today by reminding our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine biblical soteriology, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.